Love Business with Alan Wick. Hello, this is Alan Wick, and welcome to my show. I've been a business coach for 20 years, focusing on owner-managed businesses. Before that, I spent 25 years as an entrepreneur, founding, scaling up, and ultimately selling a number of businesses nationally and internationally. Some years ago, the late Steve Jobs gave a wonderful speech to students at Stanford University at the end of their studies, and in it, he advised them to stay hungry, stay foolish. I decided to adapt what he said to students then for entrepreneurs now. So instead of stay hungry, stay foolish, I say stay hungry, stay learning. In this show, I interview experienced entrepreneurs, hearing their success stories and also discussing their mistakes and learnings as they continue along their business journey. If you have a question or a comment, you can call us on 01342-889-488 or you can email lovebusiness at alanwick.com. I'm also proud to say that my show is sponsored by Magus Wealth. There's a lot involved in selling a business, and so having good advisors on your side is essential. The earlier you start the process and surround yourself with the right team, the better. Working with the right advisors will add significant value to the process. So, if you're thinking about exiting or selling your business, speak to Magus Wealth today. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Juliet Barrett, co-founder of Grenade. No, I'm not talking about the weapon. I'm talking about one of the world's fastest growing sports performance weight management brands. So hello, Juliet. Thank you so much for joining me on my show. How are you today? Yeah, good. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. What's your role at the company? Um, I've stepped away from day-to-day grenade as in the 1st of January this year. Um, prior to that, I was um, head of marketing, so I headed up anything to do with the brand, the look and feel of the product, as well as dealing with all the IP. Uh-huh. And for those who haven't heard of grenade, what does it do? When Grenade launched back in 2009, it was more of a sports nutrition brand, so more of a specialist brand. So we were selling into gyms and health clubs with sort of performance products. Um, as the sort of markets change, proteins become more normalized now. So Grenade's main sort of core business is like healthy snacking, so bars and shakes. Okay. And to give people a, a, an, a, an idea of the size of the business, can you speak to that? Yep. So the last sort of valuation that we had was when Lion Capital invested. They bought a majority stake and that was back in February 2017. Um, and that valued the business at seventy-two million pounds. Terrific! Quite a success story. And how far are your products distributed? Are they national, international? No, we're a global brand. So we initially set up just to be a sort of lifestyle business. So it was meant to be a bit of a hobby. Um, but we got attraction from the US very early on, um, and we sell to about eighty different countries now. Um, we deal with 40 of those direct from the UK warehouse, and we've got an office in the US and one in the Middle East as well. Fantastic. What about the sort of products? What are, what are the most popular ones, and who are they popular with? Um, our sort of flagship product when we launched was Thermodetonator, which is a weight loss product. 
um, as the markets changed and proteins become very, very popular, our main seller, which, you know, equates to over sort of 70% of our sales is Carb Killer, which is a high protein, low sugar chocolate bar. And I think there are currently 12 different flavors of that. And are the, are the people who buy it what, what I call general public or are they specialized people who are uh, fitness fanatics? No, I mean, initially the, the products were aimed more towards the fitness fanatics. So it was very much a gym-based brand. Now, you know, the, the audience is so wide. It's 50-50 male, female, probably slightly more females, actually. And it ranges from sort of 18-year-olds up to 60-year-olds that may be a, di- a, a diabetic and they just want a low-sugar chocolate bar. So it's a very broad mix of people. Yeah. Um, and then going back to the start, uh, Juliet, how did you start it? What inspired you to start the company? Well, I had a very sort of traditional background. So I worked in education. I was a teacher and then went to work at a sixth form college and then back into teaching as a head of sixth form. Um, and then I met my uh, partner, the other founder, um, and he had a sports distribution business. So he was selling other people's products to gyms and health clubs. So we realized very early on that there was space in the market for someone to do a really, really strong branded product. And that's why we set up our own brand. And when was that? Uh, We incorporated in 2009 and we launched our first product in the UK in February 2010. Yeah. And what happened then? Tell us about the first year. I think a lot of listeners wonder how a company goes from a startup to something of the sort of scale you've established, particularly during the first year or two. What did you do to get noticed, to get the product out there? Well, it's weird, you know, when we, we, we thought about Grenade, it was actually back in 2006. So this was like four years, just under four years um, until we actually launched our first product. And that's when we started buying up the uh, intellectual property for the name Grenade. So we trademarked that. And then we had to start looking at the packaging. So we started investing in the tooling. So all this was sort of going on behind the scenes. Um, But when we launched our first product in the UK in February 2010, we were actually sat in the US in Florida on holiday. um, And we were watching, we went with two distributors in the UK, um, two sort of wholesalers. And we just genuinely thought that the product would sell. And I remember looking at their sales portals thinking, God, this product isn't selling, you know, we're in trouble because you put all your money into it, all your effort and you just assume it's going to sell. But then we realized really early on that we couldn't rely on other people to generate demand. So we came back from holiday early and then started doing everything. So we worked tirelessly in the first sort of year, 18 months we did all the magazines. We did all the trade shows that we could do. We always call it sort of hand-to-hand combat. So it was going and seeing all the retailers, you know, being seen at all the shows, advertising everywhere. Um, it was pre-social media. So everything was done in sort of like print. Um, but it was really, really hard work. And you just think because you've got such a good idea or you think it's a good product that it's just going to sell, but it doesn't because the market's obviously saturated. And, you know, it does take time to build up that credibility. And what about funding to get you off the ground? Where did that come from? So I've got a very sort of weird relationship with money. I hate owing anybody anything. So if I borrowed a pound off somebody, I'd need to give it them straight back. So this was completely self-funded. So we sold our previous distribution business um, and everything we had went back into Grenade. So we put a director's loan in, I think, of about sort of £200,000. 
um, and that paid for all the tooling or the initial product or the initial marketing. And there was one stage very early on in the business that we were down to like £27 in the, in the bank accounts, in the business bank accounts. And that was quite a scary time. Um, but you've got belief in your product and, you know, eventually the sales started to come and, you know, you can self-fund. Yeah. Was there a stage in the first year or two when you came back from America and were putting all that effort in yourselves when you knew that it would succeed? Um, I, I think our gut feeling was that it would always succeed. I don't think we ever thought it would be as global and as sort of iconic as it is now, but we always had genuine belief in the product. And I think that's the one sort of bit of advice that I'd give to people is that if you believe in your product and you genuinely think there's a need for it, then it's much easier for you to sort of do the late nights and not have the holidays and not pay yourself a salary because you have got that genuine belief. And apart from your combined knowledge of what might be needed, what the recipe would look like, the packaging, etc. Mm. What else gave you that confidence to know that this was the right thing for the right market? Um, because we'd worked in the sports nutrition sector before in the distribution business, we had really good relationships with the suppliers, we had really good relationships with the wholesalers, and people knew us in the industry. And I think that was, that, that was really important to us. It's a lot harder if you go into a space that you're not familiar with because then you have to establish all those sort of relationships. So that did stand us in good stead, the fact that we knew who the right people were to talk to and we'd almost got a bit of reputation already. A good one, obviously. Yeah. And was there anybody in particular that inspired you to start this, to sell your distribution business and go into uh, starting Grenade? Um, No, I mean, it was really just... The, the two of us together that you know we talked about it we realized that we both wanted the same thing we wanted our own brand we were willing to put in the work we were willing to sort of sacrifice the holidays and the time off to do it and I think as long as you're both on the same page and you've got the same vision for the brand that that's why it works it would be very hard if you had a partner or a co-founder that you know wanted to go on holiday all the time or wanted the lifestyle whereas you were the one that were putting in all the hard work yeah, and the, the, this is a theme that comes up a lot, Juliet, in business partnerships, which is division of labour and who's responsible yeah. for what. Was mm. that very clear from the outset or did you did that evolve over time? No, it was clear from day one. Um, and I think that's why it was such a sort of long, successful partnership, uh, you know, in the business, the fact that we had very, very distinct roles. So Al used to do all the MPD and um, the sales whereas I used to do all the branding and the marketing and like the intellectual property. If we were trying to do each other's jobs all the time, I think we'd have butted heads, but we've got the trust and we had the same vision. So we just sort of worked separately, which, which was good. Yeah. And also, what about where your products are manufactured? Again, that's a big strategic choice for companies like yours getting off the ground in the early years, whether to vertically integrate have their own manufacturing facilities or whether to subcontract or or maybe a bit of both what what was your policy from the beginning well we've always used uh, co-packers so we've never had our manufacturing in-house and we try and use the best manufacturers for the best products and because we're working with protein there are some factories manufacturers that can work with protein a lot better than others um, unlike other sort of protein bar brands taste was integral to us 
So instead of going to normal protein bar manufacturers, we actually went to some of the big confectionery manufacturers and said to them, we want to start working with protein. Will you help us? And we sort of, um, you know, invested in their R&D and machinery um, and enabled them to sort of play in this protein space. Um, yeah. And we still sort of outsource all of our sort of manufacturing contract packing at the moment. So the only part of the business that we used to do in-house that we don't do in-house anymore was the warehousing. And again, we got to the point where we couldn't do it well enough. So we just went to the experts um, that could obviously do it a lot better than us. And that's the same for the protein bar manufacturers. Well, did you have any concerns sharing your recipes, IP, etc., with co-packers? Of course. Um, but the one thing about Grenade is that we always over, um, sorry, under, under, uh, under promise and over deliver. Um, and, you know, we've got really good relationships with the manufacturers, but we do work very hard getting the IP protected so that there are recipes and they can't use them with anyone else. Okay. And then what about breaking through to the big retailers and so on? Um, how, did, how did you go about that to get it well distributed and really out there? They're very difficult to break into. That's right. And when we first launched with uh, a big retailer, it was Tesco's, and it was back in 2014, uh, sorry, 2000, late 2014, early 2015 from memory. And we actually created the protein bar category in mass market retail in the UK. So before, protein was always a very sort of specialist product. It was always sold in specialist shops like GNC or Holland and Barrett or gyms with advice. Um, I'll never forget the phone call that we had from Tesco's from their sort of health and wellness buyer. And he said, I can't ignore you anymore. Um, and that was a great sort of point for us because we actually got on the radar of, of the big sort of grocery players. And Tesco's were our first sort of listing in the UK. But again, it was a huge challenge trying to work with Tesco's because we just didn't know how they worked. So we were trying to work out how to send pallets in with all the breakdown labels. And it's a real learning curve. Um, and because we were willing to invest the time in building the relationship and getting to know their processes, that's why it's been such a sort of fruitful relationship for, for Grenade. There must have been something that you did differently with your brand from previous competitors getting into the big retailers like Tesco, that the brand then got the attention of the buyer. Because uh, I love that story that he could no longer... Uh, avoid you anymore what was it that you think you did to get that literally a breakthrough into the mainstream again it happened with um firma detonator which was our weight loss product so we did body power at the nec which is a big health and fitness show this was our first trade show it was back in may 2010 we didn't have any budget at all all the other brands were there building these huge sort of um, booths that were taking like three days to put up we couldn't afford to do that. So we hired a tank, we hmm. drove it into the NEC, um, and that was our booth. And that got the attention of the um, health and wellness buyer of GNC in the US. And we hmm. got an email from him like three weeks later saying, look, guys, you know, I saw you at Body Power. You were brilliant. You really stood out. What have you got? And again, you know, with Grenade, we've always been so sort of protective and proud of the Grenade brands. And we always say that we don't actually mind if people love us or they hate us. Obviously, we'd prefer that they love us, but at least they've noticed us because yeah. we never want to be that vanilla brand. And we understand that we're not going to appeal to everyone, but people do notice us and they do pick us up. And, and, and that's worth a lot to me. Yeah, it's what I call the Marmite effect. Yeah, definitely. 
and and that that's advice very good advice Juliet for smaller companies and brands trying to break out that that tend to play play it a bit safe and try to be all things to all people and actually you just can't do it you've got to stand for something and be very clear uh, with with the offer yeah very good lesson one thing I always say to people is stay true to your brands you know what your brand should be and it it is hard as the brand gets bigger that you know it can get a little bit diluted but you know just follow your gut instincts and you know stay true to the brands yeah so i'm i'm visualizing a hockey stick is that what happened the first few years then getting into tesco then what happened other retailers and then very fast growth yeah that's right so again you know when when one retailer stocks you the others want you as well um, but still in Tesco's, we were sat down the sports nutrition aisles um, and we wanted to be next to the confectionery players in the confectionery aisles. Mm. So there was still a lot of work to do. And really one of the biggest sort of um, opportunities for us is we had investment back in 2014 from Grove Point Capital, um, great friends of ours now. Um, and they actually had an investment in Rontec petrol stations And we could actually see that this was the way that protein was going to go. It was becoming more and more convenient. People wanted to grab and go. They wanted to be able to pick it up, a healthy snack from a gas station. So we had meetings with them very early on, and we were the first brand to get listed in gas stations and forecourts. Mm -hmm. And again, that was a great place for grenade bars to sit because people, you know, were in there getting petrol and they wanted something healthier. Prior to us, the only real option was a bag of nuts or a chocolate bar. So that was, you know, we were first to market in that space and that was really exciting for us. That also speaks to how business owners choose funding. Is it is it just the money that they need or do they also look for some other value add, whether it's distribution or JVs with other types of companies that will help them, them along? And it sounds like in this case, you've got backing both from a financial point of view and also access to market? Although I'll be honest with you, Anna, I think that that is the case. But for us, it wasn't about the money at all. Uh-huh. Um, the business was very sort of cash generative. Um, we had loads of opportunities. For us, it was about de-risking a little bit. So there was really Al and I and four cats. Um, and <laughs> everything we had was tied up in the business. Mm. So the opportunity to almost take a little bit off the table and then restart was was a phenomenal opportunity for us. And you're right, you know, p- partnering with somebody who had the sort of value adds was a nice sort of uh, tick in the box or, or the cherry on the cake. Um, yeah. But it was really about de-risking and resetting and going again. For, for those listeners that may not understand what you mean by de-risking, yeah. it's just worth reminding ourselves about the risks of setting up a business okay, you had cash from a previous business, yeah. but there's still a huge amount of risk in putting your lives, your home, everything on the line and Definitely. building something up that takes money. So mm. perhaps just take us back to that point, more from a feeling point of view, what it was like with yourself and your husband having built the business up to that point that you then felt, okay, we'll de-risk. What actually drives that and what did you do about it? 
I think because we were so emotionally involved with the business, everything that happened, we took really personally. So the highs were massively high and brilliant. The lows were very, very personal. So I remember I used to deal with all the IP and every time someone challenged, not challenged our IP, but launched a product that infringed on our IP, I get really sort of upset about it. because I was like, oh, you know, how could you do it? And you take it really personally. So for us, it was almost about having that support from a partner that had owned big brands before that could actually give us some guidance and maybe enable us to sort of grow the team. Because as an entrepreneurial business, you're very hesitant to employ people because you think you can do it all yourself. Mm. But actually, it gets to a point where you need someone to say to you, look, guys, you know, you can't work any more hours. You need people in that can come and help you. Um, and that's what really what we mean by de-risking, the fact that we could take a little bit of cash off the table. So that was almost tucked away for what we'd achieved so far, and then we could go again. Yeah. And then what impetus did that give you? What happened? It felt, feels like a, a step change at that moment. How did it change the business, and what did you do next? Well, the, the thing we did when we did the deal was um, we had a curry and a cream egg, I remember that. Um, but for us, it was almost, we took a deep breath and then the next day we were back at work. So it was almost just a process that we had to get through to, to start again. But it did encourage us to look at the staff. So we employed a finance director who's now a great friend, still with the business, who was a, a really, really good member of staff and he's just brilliant um, and I don't think we'd have ever employed him if it hadn't been for growth points um, they also made some introductions for us to uh, you know companies such as Rontech and helped us focus because again as an entrepreneurial business you want to do everything but when you've got investors that have obviously got that investment tied up in your business um, you know they want some sort of strategy and some growth plan and they do help you focus and that was that was really really helpful. Mm. Um, and how much did they uh, challenge you as far as succession goes and that that gradual delegation and handing over to other people, whether it's a finance director or other marketing or sales or MPD people, did that begin to happen around that time? Um, they never really challenged us, I'll be honest, because the business was growing so quickly and we were so passionate about it and we were all on the same page. It was a very sort of amicable you know partnership we're all in it together um they may have challenged us but in a way that we didn't feel that we were being challenged um it was probably more of a sort of supportive role and that sort of gentle guidance um but they did make us realize that we needed to bring on good people into the business um to help us grow so we bought on the fd we bought on some more finance staff we started to grow the marketing departments the sales departments but again a lot of this would have happened organically because the business was growing so we would have had to have taken on more salespeople. they just probably gave us that sort of um that guidance that we should be doing it sooner rather than later yeah uh, and another uh, challenge that many business owners have around this sort of time uh, when they're growing quickly and they're expanding is the balance between choosing whether to develop new products, NPD, mm. against developing new channels or new markets or doing them in some cases with fast-growing companies both together. Did you have a particular strategy or policy as far as that was concerned, or is it relatively organic and you went along as you as you did and reacted to, to opportunities? Uh, the latter, definitely. Um, so it was very organic. The market was growing, so we had demand globally. 
um, and we had sort of demand from retailers in the UK. So we knew that we had to develop new products. But the MPD process for some of our protein bars, for example, was like 24 months. Mm. So all this was going on the, in the background whilst we were developing new markets, you know, um, geographies or sort of retailers. I'd like to be able to say, yeah, it was all planned and, you know, we have this hit list of who we were going to go for. But even if we'd have had that, other stuff would have come up. Um, And again, sort of as an entrepreneurial business, you want to do as much as you can. Um, When we had our second round of investment, which was Lion Capital back in 2017, they were a lot more strategic. Mm. Um, So obviously they invested a lot more money and they wanted us to have more of a strategy, Um, not necessarily saying no to other stuff, but just focusing on particular retailers or particular geographies. Yeah. Um, How has it been exporting the products? Have there been particular markets where you've had to adapt the products to suit those markets? Or when you're developing MPD, you try to do to create products that will apply to as many different markets as possible? Yeah, that's that. I mean, the UK is our core market. So it's, I think it's just short of 70% of our overall business. So the UK was always sort of the, the first one. Um, but yeah, we, we, we've really been the first company in the UK to export sports nutrition products to the US because everything was coming from the US into the UK mm. market. So it's been a huge learning curve. Um, the formulas are different. So some ingredients are banned in the UK, but available and widely used in the US. So we've got different formulations. That actually helped us as well with regard to importing, uh, sorry, um, grey imports. So we didn't want any US product getting into the UK because mm. of you know the, the exchange rate. So by having different formulas, it was easier to sort of manage that. Mm. Um, there were issues to do with the language and the tone of voice and the look and feel of the product that we hadn't even thought about. So, for example, in the US, um, things like chocolate orange or fruit flavors aren't a big thing. Whereas in the UK, you know, our chocolate orange carb killer bar is a really, really good seller just like our dark chocolate raspberry, but those flavours don't translate into the US. So we just had to sort of be careful, make sure that everything we did was relevant for that particular market. And and finding local distribution in, in the States and co-packers there or shipping from here? Um, we ship some products from the EU. So we manufacture in the EU and then ship some to the UK and some to the US. And then we've got US manufacturers as well that do a lot of our powders and capsules. And again, it was very difficult to sort of build those relationships because Grenade didn't have the credibility that it does in the UK. So everyone had heard of us in the UK, but in the US, it was almost starting afresh and saying, look, you know, we're a UK company. Will you manufacture for us? And they were like, well, I've never heard of you. And how, you know, what quantities do you want? And, you know, let's look at the credit terms. So it was, you know, it was challenging. Mm. And did you or your husband go over there to get that set up and spend any time over there? Yep. So we both sort of go to the US office frequently, um, but we also have a team in the US that we're growing. So we've got actual boots on the ground. Um, So that's been really useful because I think it would be very hard to drive demand from the UK into the US because they're just so different. We speak the same language, but you know, the sense of humour is different, you know, the, the meanings of some words. It's a, it's a real sort of learning curve. And what about Europe and um, Middle East or Far East? Have you ventured into those markets? Yep. So we've opened up an office in the last 12 months in Dubai. So the Middle East is a big market for Grenade. Um, it's still very much a market based on sort of 
sports nutrition products. So most of them are still sold in specialist stores or in the gyms. Um, but we've got some great distributors in, in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Dubai. Um, so that, that market's growing nicely. But again, you know, we've got different challenges there. So product registration is harder. We have to get all the packaging translated. And just for six months of the year in Dubai, it's too hot to ship chocolate. So mm. we had to work very hard with, um, with the um, shipping companies to make sure everything was kept in refrigerated containers because we were losing product because it was getting unloaded at the port and just left in a container in 40 degrees heat. So there are all these sort of challenges as well. But the prize is, is big and the Middle East is a nice sort of growing market for us. Mm. Interesting. And then turning to the future, Juliet, for the company and, and yourself, and you mm. said at the beginning that you've stepped away to some extent. Um, what, what does that hold for you? What are you looking to do now? Um, one of the things that really sort of floats my boat is the brand and, and working with startups. So I'm a very sort of visual person, a very brand person. I think the power of the brand, especially in business today is key and it's sometimes the, the thing that people forget you know they get so wrapped up in the sales and the spreadsheets and the forecast that they actually forget about what made them special in the first place so I'm really looking forward to doing some more mentoring um, so I'm working with the Prince's Trust and a couple of other sort of mentoring organizations um, I'm also going to start getting involved in some sort of startups um, so really when it's about developing the brand and those sort of initial stages where you can't employ someone, you just need someone that's been there and done it that can almost guide you. And the one thing that excites me is seeing brands grow. Um, so, yeah, new challenges, definitely. And having a little bit of time off. So I spent the last sort of four or five years just traveling for work. So I'm actually looking forward to traveling and not having to take a laptop, which would be a first for me. Mm -hmm. You know that the, the theme of my show is very much around learning. And I'm just wondering what learnings you've had, what things have you learned along the way? In particular, thinking now about mistakes, things you wish you might have done differently that you'd share with the listeners, I think would be really useful. I mean, I, I'm a really positive person. So everything we did at Grenade and everything I did at Grenade, I fully support and we did for a particular reason. It seemed like the best thing to do at that particular time. And for me, a mistake is something that you keep on doing. Um, if you make a mistake and you learn from it and you don't do it again, then I think that's just a really, really good lesson. There are lots of sort of challenges. So recruitment was definitely something that was very difficult for us. So maybe I should have delegated sooner, got good people around so that, you know, that would help the business to grow. I think that was really important. Um, what are the mistakes? Maybe trying to do everything. So I think especially when the business was relatively young, I tried to get involved in everything. So the sales, the MPD, the, you know, um, marketing, the recruitment. And sometimes you need to focus so I'm a big list writer and I still am now. And that's maybe something that I should have done a little bit more of, just sort of prioritised and focused on certain things and looking at the bigger picture as opposed to getting involved in all the sort of minute detail um, because you can get bogged down in that. Yeah. Is there one particular learning that you'd say that's a key one? Like if there's a business person listening, a business owner who says, Juliet, what's the one thing you'd pass on, the one bit of advice that, that would be the most useful that you've learned? 
I think for me, it's about growth and managing the growth. And the one thing that was so integral to Grenade was the Grenade culture. And when we were bringing on people into the business, the ones that were the best employees and lifelong friends were the ones that had the same sort of mentality and the same DNA as you. So I would always say that sort of cultural fit and surrounding yourself by like-minded people is key. You can train someone, you know, upskill them to do a particular job, but you can't change who they are. And the best employees and the things that have made Grenade such a pleasure is surrounding yourself by good, like-minded people. So I think that would be my one bit of key advice. Keep the culture of your business as you want it. Um, Then the question has to be, how do you do that? I think so many business owners I come across get the idea of that. They realize the importance of it, but they seem to struggle with how do they do it. Is Is there a formula to it? Is there an approach you and your husband took to how you did that? I mean, I don't know whether there was really an approach, but just one example. Um, We had a guy that now is one of our sort of senior sales guys, and we saw him at a gym that we used to go to. And every time we saw him, he was tidying up, he was on his hands and knees, he spoke really well to customers, to awkward customers, and he just seemed like a good guy, really professional, and we employed him. So... I think the person is is key and it was getting to know them outside of the workplace. I mean, I really don't care what someone's CV says. It's all about what they do. So, you know, what do they do in their spare time? It's just making sure that you know them. But also, if you employ someone and you know they're not right, I know it sounds really, really hard, but you just need to get them out of the business ASAP because the one person that's not right can have a really negative effect and undo a lot of hard work. Um, so just be honest about that. So the key point there seems to be what I'd call the, would I go to the pub with this person? Would I go out? Would I go on holiday with them? Would I spend time with them? Exactly. Do you like them? Do you like them and do you trust them? I think those are the two key ones. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And did you ever um, write that down? Is there a, a grenade company culture document of any kind, DNA doc? something that is given to people either during interview or induction, or is it something that just came naturally? What we used to do, because the, both of the founders up until January were very integral to the business, we used to do inductions with new staff so they could have you know time with myself and Al and ask questions about the business, how we started, and just get to know us really. And I don't know whether it was a negative or a positive, but we were always very, very accessible. So we were always there. And a lot of staff, you know, we had them around to the house, but they, they were friends. Um, there is a Grenade brand book, which has the story of Grenade. And that was always key to us and something that we've really promoted. Mm. The fact that, you know, we founded the business. It was a real passion of ours. We're so integral to the business. Um, that, that was key. So we did try and sort of immerse people in the Grenade culture from day one. Mm. Interesting. And as far as the future goes, um, you said talked about doing some mentoring and getting involved in some uh, startup businesses. If anybody listening to the show would like to get in touch with you, Juliet, what's the best way they can do that? Um, I mean, I'm on email, Juliet, J-U-L-I-E-T, at grenade, G-R-E-N-A-D-E dot com. Uh, or LinkedIn, so it's Juliet Barrett. Um, so I'm doing some consultancy, working with startups, small businesses, um, and then some mentoring as well. 
Um, so yeah, just excited about sort of, I just love business. And, you know, we go to a lot of the, we've been lucky enough to be included on the Virgin Fast Track for the um, 100 fastest growing privately owned companies for the last five years. Um, and every year we go to like the awards dinner in London, you know, either at Sir Richard's house or a, a, an event in London. And the one thing you realise is that everyone there, no matter what their size of business, has faced the same challenges as mm. you. Mm. So it's all about staff. It's all about managing growth. It's about keeping the brand strong. It's about private equity. Everyone has the same sort of questions and issues. So you do sometimes feel that you're on your own, but you're not. There are loads of sort of support networks out there and, you know, good mentors. And I would strongly recommend sort of people having that sounding board and someone that they can talk to to get that honest, almost brutal advice sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Juliet, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fascinating talking to you and hearing your really exceptional success story. I've got no doubt that whatever you do in the future will be uh, successful and uh, perhaps help one or two other brands along their way. So thanks again. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Real Business with Alan Wick. Reflection section. Well, that was fascinating. Uh, what an incredible accomplishment to go from a startup to £72 million valuation in under 10 years. What a story. Um, and I want to look at several aspects of what Juliet was talking about uh, and uh, reflect on them and see what learnings there are from it. Let's, let's look first of all on uh, Juliet and Alan's strategy and how they uh, developed the business. They were initially inspired by uh, a concept that they learned from uh, other products of doing one thing really well. But what they did that was special was that they applied their knowledge of an area that they knew really well, which was weight loss. They'd had a distribution business before uh, in sports nutrition. They knew the market well. And so they took that idea and they thought, okay, we can do our own thing and we can uh, apply it in the way we want to and become our own uh, manufacturers rather than just distribution. And and a key part of their strategy was, and it's classic entrepreneurialism, is to spot a trend before others did and then go for it and actually put their money where their mouths were. And I love the way Juliet described their approach. Hand-to-hand -hand combat It felt like it was very direct. They were going right out, working all the hours of the day, taking their product to all the different gyms and sports nutrition places they could and getting the product accepted. It's a, a, something I call asymmetrical warfare. Um, I have a hero uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and that was the type of thing he did in the de desert in the First World War when it was a band of Bedouins rushing around the desert, hitting uh, an Ottoman bridge and then running away again and, uh, and going to the next one where you're up against much stronger competitors and you've got to do something in a different way to try to 
beat them and to get into the market. might sound a little bit uh, um, violent to compare it to warfare, but I really do think there's a, a similarity in that respect. The other thing that they had, and this is the, uh, absolutely crucial for any owner or owners uh, to have, is a vision, a clear goal, and then to have that shared amongst whoever are the owners or the partners in the business. Now, clearly in this case, um, Alan and Juliet are married, so you'd expect them to, but that's not often the case if there is a business that they have together. There can be very different ideas of goals for that particular business, but in this case, they very much did. They built up a reputation and a demand before going out to the major retailers. So they almost had to listen to them. This story that she tells of Tesco uh, had to listen. They had to take them seriously because they built up uh, that demand. And then another part of the strategy that I think came through uh, in the later years as they began to build up their business and started to export is that they adapted the product the packaging and the distribution to local markets. And that also had the added benefit of reducing the risk of grey imports because the products were that much different. When I talk about distribution also being different, when she gave the example of exporting to Dubai and learning that leaving their bars out in the baking hot sun uh, wasn't going to work, they then had to get frozen distribution uh, in that market. So that was that was a biggie. Moving on to the branding and the marketing, which of course is what Juliet uh, focused on. Um, this was really uh, a key part of their success, in my opinion. They came up with a brand that who'd have thought would be associated with a sports nutrition brand Grenade. I mean, how do those go together? And yet it's memorable with the picture of the grenade, the logo, photographs of Juliet, Juliet and her husband, the packaging, everything went together with that. And as she called it, love it or hate it, what I call a Marmite brand. And actually, I'm going to say that everyone needs to have something, particularly when they're getting uh, going to begin with, that is memorable don't be bland. Don't try to have things that are going to please many people. Uh, Seth Godin talks about the concept of the minimum viable audience. So particularly for startups, we're trying to find something that enough people will love to get the business into a sustainable uh, position. And that brand or that service, that product or whatever is for them and it's not for anybody else. And that takes a lot of guts and courage to come out with a brand, a positioning, again, whether or not it's a service business or a product business that is very definitely love it or hate it. And then what about that incredible story of hiring a tank for a trade show? I mean, how on earth do you get noticed otherwise? There's a huge trade show there are all these huge brands surrounding them. And how a little old Juliet and uh, Alan, I can hear them saying less of the old, uh, going to get noticed. They've got a grenade brand. 
They hired a tank. They brought it into a trade show. That's going to get you noticed. So it's those sorts of things. And we've heard it from all sorts of other companies. We're kind of used to by now over the last few decades of Richard Branson, who is a self-publicist, the, some of the stunts he's pulled over the years that have got him into the papers many years ago when he got Virgin Atlantic off the ground. And who'd have thought that a record company executive, somebody who'd made a success, success with tubular bells, was ever going to stretch the Virgin brand into aircraft and get into competition with Mighty BA. And yet, some of the stunts he pulled were incredible. There's nothing changed to this day in the most positive sense. It's if it's going to get you noticed, if it's going to get you talked about, go for it. And then Juliet also talked about responsibilities. And I think this is really important for all business to hear this now, owners to hear this. Now, whether or not you're starting on your own or you've got partners and you're hiring um, that there are clear responsibilities from the beginning. Uh, in Juliet and Alan's case, there were two of them to start with. Juliet very much focused on branding and marketing, whereas Alan focused on sales and product development. And it sounded clear that they understood the strengths and they respected the strengths that the others had, and they had complementary skills. Now, I'd also add in, and I didn't get a chance to ask Juliet about this, key fundamental capability that is needed right from the beginning, in my uh, uh, opinion, is is finance. Um, I think you've heard me talk before that 400,000 new businesses start up in the UK every year, and roughly three quarters of them are not around after three or four years. And the majority of the reason for that is running out of cash. Yes, of course, there's the problems of not having the right product or service at the right time and other problems. But if, you know, they say turnover is vanity, profit is sanity and cash is king. And if somebody isn't keeping an eye on cash like a hawk, then a business is just not going to last. So I'm sure they had somebody, either one of them, or they had somebody to look after finance from the beginning. And next time I speak to Juliet, I'll ask her about that. Another area she talked about that was fascinating was their attitude to money and attitude to risk. Juliet used the phrase of, well, you know, I've got a strange attitude to money. Well, I don't think there's anything strange about it. It's a choice. She said we had no borrowings. We were lucky to be self-funded. We'd had £200,000 from a previous sports nutrition distribution business that they sold, which might sound like a lot of money to uh, some entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs out there that are thinking of starting a business, but it depends what it is you're doing and what the business model is. If it's a small service business that is almost profitable and cash generative from the beginning, then of course it needs very little to get it started. But if it's a business that has got what's called a high barrier to entry, where it needs a substantial amount of funding to start, and one could argue that manufacturing a sports nutrition budget 
car is something like that, then actually a couple of hundred thousand is a relatively small amount. But they were very smart. They didn't go in for manufacturing. They didn't need to invest in a factory. They went from, for co-packing from the beginning. So they got others to make the products for them. What they spent their money on was what mattered to their customers, the branding, the quality of the product, and the belief and attitude that they had that this was the right product at the right time. And then changing attitudes from what had previously been spending a very small amount of money, perhaps 60, 80, maybe a P, a pound on a bar, to over two pounds because this is a health nutrition bar that's going to help you lose weight or get fitter. So it had a very clear benefit to the target market. Something else that uh, um, I think is, is worth underlining is that Alan and Juliet had specific relevant experience in sports nutrition, and they already had relationships in that market. So that wasn't something that they went into knowing nothing. So I'm going to say that although it might sound uh, when we first hear about it, my goodness, wasn't this a huge risk for them? Yes, it was risky for them to do this, but I've seen a lot of other businesses start with much less experience in their, in, in an entrepreneur's chosen market um, and much less knowledge of and clarity of what they're going to do uh, in the future and less of a vision and strong branding. So I'm going to say in some senses, this was medium risk rather than really high risk in the way that they uh, approach their business. And then there was also another very interesting reflection, I think, that on both occasions when they received out, outside funding, and these were serious amounts of funding in the millions when the business was worth in the tens of millions, and then again, more recently, being valued at as much as £70 million. Pounds. She, do you remember she used that, that phrase of de-risking? They de-risk. Well, what does that mean exactly? By taking money off the table, it meant that whenever they did get funding, they took some of that money for themselves. Not enough not to leave them hungry. Not enough that would frighten the investors that they were getting too comfortable and they would lose their ambition. But it just enough to enable them to live and work with less stress. After all, they'd been living and working the business for three, four years, 24-7, with no holidays, full-time, and who can blame them for taking some of that stress off themselves and beginning to hire people and so on? Uh, quite understandable. But I've seen some entrepreneurs who get up to those sort of stages and start to get several million pounds into the business and put all of it into the business, thinking what heroes they are, and then burn out a year or two later because they continue to push the business as hard then as they did at the very beginning. And I don't think that's a sensible choice. Then she came on to talking about culture. You know from previous broadcasts that I've done that this is a huge uh, area for me. I believe this is crucial uh, for uh, 
uh, all businesses. And it's an overused word. Let's just bring it down to its plain English behaviors. What behaviors do we as business owners want to see in our businesses? What do we want to see when we're not there? What do we want to hear when we're not there as if we were a fly on the wall? How do we want our people to behave, not only within the business, but to their client, our clients and suppliers and so on? And what she kept on saying throughout the interview is that what made Grenade successful is their culture. It was crucial to surround themselves with like-minded people. And you can train and upskill people, this Juliet's words, but you can't change who they are. Make sure you see them outside their work. She even said their CV doesn't matter to her. It's what they do that matters. And I think that's really fundamental. Hire for culture, number one. Skills, number two. You can always train people, but you can't change their belief systems and how they act and behave when they're uh, in in front of you, let alone when they're uh, uh, when you can't see them. And then this rather harsh sounding point that she made, but I happen to agree with that if the fit isn't right culturally, then make a decision, harsh though it might be, that they have to exit the business because one person who does not fit in uh, can ruin uh, the culture for everybody else. And I'm, I'm talking mostly about SMEs and small bit growth businesses, uh, you know, where it's more or less everyone in one room. Obviously, when it's a much bigger business, uh, uh, the effects of somebody who doesn't fit the culture uh, will be uh, minimized. And it's not quite the same importance, in my view. So finally, what were the lessons learned? What were her lessons? What things might she do differently in the future? Well, number one, main lesson, stay true to your brand. The brand values book that she talked about, everything to do with what Grenade stands for, stay true to it. Don't vary from that. Make sure when you're starting a business that you're really clear that you're solving a problem that exists not one you imagine that exists. There's an old phrase about it's all very well uh, climbing the ladder of success, but make sure you know what wall you're leaning the ladder against. I I think that's a lovely uh, image. And I liked her phrase, a mistake is something you keep on doing. If you make a mistake and don't do it again, that's learning. I thought that was very good. And another lesson was that she should have delegated sooner instead of trying to do everything. Then she could have focused on the bigger picture rather than get bogged down in the details. Now, let's face it, that is a really difficult one because any entrepreneurs who've got the kind of makeup to start a business usually want to be in control. They want to control everything down to the colour of the, the staplers. And the trick is to get to a certain stage and to get beyond that stage uh, and go uh, uh, um, to build the the business beyond that at a certain level, it's absolutely crucial to let go and start delegating, even though whoever you take on is never going to do the job 
as well as you do. At least that's a belief. The reality is different. I much prefer Steve Jobs's view that whoever we hire should be a lot better than we are. Uh, otherwise, why bother? So with that, um, I think that was a tremendous interview, fascinating person. And uh, that ends the reflection section of today's interview. Well, that about wraps things up. I do hope that you've taken away some useful learnings for your own business. If you have a question or comment, please call 01342 or send me an email at lovebusiness at If you'd like to listen to this show again, visit the listen page on meridianfm.com. You'll also find the link on the radio show page of my website, alanwick.com. I'm proud to say that my show is sponsored by Magus Wealth. If you're planning on selling your business, Magus Wealth can guide you through the process, helping you to understand how much your business is worth. They'll give you access to their trusted partners to ensure that every aspect of getting your business ready for sale is covered. Get in touch with Magus Wealth. It starts with a conversation. Thank you for listening. Do tune in again at the same time, 2pm every Sunday, when I'll be interviewing another interesting entrepreneur. And remember, stay hungry, stay learning. Love Business with Alan Wick.